Good afternoon, Lumbal. Good afternoon. So today is Monday, August 17th, 2020. Thank you for offering another opportunity for all of us to hear some Dhamma. So today's first question is about um, meditation uh, method. You have a way of teaching meditation where you really emphasize watching the mind. And a lot of meditation teachers emphasize techniques that are geared more towards developing concentration. Could you say something about those two, please? Yeah, well, like the concentration exercises are what we call samatha meditation. And the main purpose is for tranquility because the minds are very active and uh, we think all the time. And therefore, you know, you know we create excitement or depression or moods according to what we're thinking in the moment. And uh, so by tranquilizing the tendency to slow down the thinking process or to, you know, the aim of is to concentrate, send your, your, your consciousness out to an object to concentrate on. So, it, you know, it can be in the breath or a casino or candle flame or Buddha Rupa or any object that you, you choose to focus your attention on, excluding everything else. So that, that is a, certainly a valuable technique. But many of us found, you know, speaking from personal experience, that the, uh, my thinking mind was always getting in the way because I, I saw myself in the early days as an obsessed thinker and uh, and doubter and I found you know even though I could get the level of concentration through some of our practices to concentrate in uh, you know I found that I you know when it, when I stopped concentrating the mind was back again in its usual frantic movements of thinking and worrying and anxiety and self-consciousness. So when I was a Samanera, I, before I met Manpacha, I had, um, I had this one book, or Word of the Buddha. It was a collection of teachings from the suttas, uh, from the Tripitaka collected in a little booklet by Jnana Tiloka, a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka a hundred years ago. And I took that book with me when I was the Samanera. And so I just started contemplating uh, the Four Noble Truths because the whole emphasis on that book, Word of the Buddha, was about how to develop insight into those 
Four Noble Truths. Well, that had my real interest because, you know, the first noble truth is suffering. And, uh, you know, I was certainly suffering a lot, being alone in a, you know, in a situation where I didn't understand the language and everything was strange and different. And I never spent any time alone like that in, in, a, in a little meditation hut in Nongkai province. So there was a lot of suffering. And, and so the first noble truth, I began to observe it. Uh, you know, I had this insight that he said, you know, that the, you know, the practice of understanding suffering is one of the insights. And this was the first sermon of the Buddha after his enlightenment to his five colleagues, the five uh, friends that he left behind to go and seek enlightenment somewhere else. And this is, you know, then it began to make sense that, that, um, and so I just watched the, the suffering I created through thinking. And I became aware, of, you know, that I had the, I had insight one, one day, a really strong insight that absolutely, uh, surprised me was I had to stop thinking. And I thought, that's impossible. I can't stop thinking, you know, the, the, try to stop. You know, I try to use willpower and, you know, and just force myself to not think, but it, it takes all my effort to, to control it. And then when I let go of the effort, the thinking all rebounds back stronger than ever. So it seemed impossible, but um, also one of the main teachings that I followed over the years, when I met Lung Cha the following year, I'd taken the higher ordination, the bhikkhu ordination, and went to live with Lung Cha in Ubon. And he was emphasizing the puto, yeah, they, it's the kind of the word of the, it's the name of the Buddha in a kind of mantra style to use this one word to, to, uh, if you're going to think, just think this one word, puto. And, uh, so, it, and in Thai it's called puto, but it actually means Buddha. And so I found that really helpful because in Thai, Thai language, they translate Bhutto as Guru, the knower, the knowing. And, and that's what I began to find, you know, recognize that, that uh, I was aware of suffering. And that awareness itself wasn't suffering. The, the suffering was the, the mood, the, the, the state of mind or the thoughts I had to think I had to attach to ideas and where I created suffering and when I and one of the insights into the noble truth is to let go of conditions so I've had inside practice letting go of you know what I saw just of being the witness the 
the knower, the knowing itself, not like someone who knows, but just uh, the reality of knowing in the present moment is like this. So then uh, over the years, you know, I meet many people with the same problem of and living in England for so many years, you know, people are well educated and they they think all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, I, they could relate to my teaching very well because uh, many of them failed at concentration practices, but when it came to actually being the the knowing in the present moment, they could they could actually do that observe, be the witness. So Puto became the, the position of the witness, and that is awareness itself. Awareness and consciousness. You know, these are, are not personal. Uh, we, create, we create a sense of being a separate person through thoughts. And we identify with the body as ourself. So we feel always separate from everyone else because when we look at each other, you know, we feel I'm separate. I'm sitting here, Ajahn Sogu sitting over there. That seems like a separation. But in awareness, in, in mindfulness, awareness, consciousness in the present moment, it's, there's no separation. And so this is the insight you get through observing that the conditions of the mind, the, the emotions that you're feeling, the, whether you feel angry or happy or contented or depressed or uh, worried about the future or guilty about the past, you know, you're, you're aware of it. So awareness never ceases, you know, even though you're you're looking out like the ordinary unawakened person is always looking outside, looking for a distraction, looking, you know, seeking sensory impingement to to try to distract themselves from from their negative mental states, their feeling of guilt, remorse, their feeling of Utility or boredom or or worry or anxiety about the future. So, like in vipassana meditation, insight into the way things are, you begin to to have these natural insights that by just observing, you know, being putting yourself into that position of bhuto of awareness. The word itself is a sankhara, so it, you know. At first, you you use the word to to avoid thinking anything else that will calm the mind down. So even just thinking puto 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 is is one way. is a good beginning where you 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 kind of race with your own thinking habits to keep puto in consciousness. And then after a while, it, you know, it, it slows down and soon you, you see it's the knowing in the present. And you drop the puto and there's pure awareness. And awareness doesn't, 
horizon cease. It's not a personal condition. It's not a something that 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 we attach to. You know, you can't you can't stop being aware, but it's a matter of interpreting awareness in the right way. Like the ignorant, unawakened human being is always interpreting experience on a on with personal pronouns, my feelings, this is my body, I this is mine, I am this way. <clears throat> and so whatever we're thinking, you know, like with the emotion like anger. Many people have worry about their problems they have with anger. And uh, on retreats, one of the common questions is, how do I get rid of anger? And of course, <clears throat> you know, you're that's, uh, that's coming from the, the ego attitude of anger is, is, is my problem. But anger is a condition that arises according to other conditions that you have no control over. You have no control over the, the impingement you receive from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or even thinking. You know, it, it just happens. And sometimes it's cloudy and gray and cold and wet and you feel like this. <clears throat> or it's bright and sunny and and uh, happy, everything looks beautiful, it's like this. But the awareness doesn't get happy or depressed according to the changes of the weather. The same applies to, to moods. You know, like moods are like the weather, they, they come and go. Sometimes life is exciting, interesting, happy. Uh, other times it's depressing and, and uh, disgusting and, and unfair and unjust and it's, it's like this. But those moods, these moods come and go and change according to other, when the conditions change. But what doesn't change, ever change, is conscious awareness. And it's interpreting awareness, what we experience in the right Forms rather than seeing it in terms of personal, uh, as me as a person, as this separate form, this body, as a separate person in the universe, <laughs> interpreting the moods, the habits, the habit patterns I've developed in my lifetime in highly personal terms, judging them as skillful, unskillful, good, bad, right, and wrong. Yeah, the Puto is not a judge. Buddha is not, not a judge. It doesn't judge. It doesn't criticize. <clears throat> so the word Buddha <clears throat> is, uh, you know, it's quite a powerful word because we tend to think of it as a religion or, a, or as a, a sage of India 2,500 years ago, we see it in personal terms. But Buddha actually is awakened consciousness here and now. And when we take refuge in Buddha, you know, you're not taking refuge in the memory of, of a wise sage of India. <laughs> you're taking refuge in awareness. 
So this, you know, you train yourself. Also, to another technique is uh, noticing the behind every thought, you know, the substratum, the basis that never changes, that is always here and now, is mindfulness or awareness, consciousness. It's, you know, no matter what the state of mind, what state of your health, the, the, whether you're male or female or it's healthy or sick, awareness isn't, doesn't take on qualities of good, bad, right, and wrong. It's not judgmental. Recognize that the judgmental side that we experience is a condition, uh, you know, conditioned by language and the identity with the physical body and the, and the, with the five khandhas, the, the, the body, the feelings, the, the memories, the emotions and consciousness through the senses. So we're always, you know, we're creating this illusory self all the time through this, this habit pattern we've developed from early, from the time we started learning to speak and think. Now is the time to change that, to, to begin to investigate. It's not an annihilation of personality or you know, it's not a judgment against the, the conditioned realm of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. It's not about judging it, but recognizing that, it, that all these conditions are impermanent and change. And we're looking for stability, for love, for peace. And all we're getting through our attachments to conditions is change. You know, so, you know, when you're young, you're hoping to find the right person and live happily ever after, but conditions change, you know. Forever after is is an imagined state in the future, uh, which, you know, in itself is impermanent and untrustworthy. So we get disappointed in, in our relationships because, you know, Life isn't about living happily ever after in a physical body, which will inevitably get old, get sick and die. But, but what is eternal and trustworthy is awareness. So many times you, you contemplate that, you know, the reality of the here and now, because when you start investigating, you realize that experience is always here and now. You don't experience the future or the past. And then you ask yourself the question, what is the past of this moment? Right now I'm sitting here in my kuti, reflecting and the past is a memory like yesterday. I was sitting here like this, but not uh, being photographed. It's a memory in the present. And so memory always arises and ceases in the present. What is the future right now, tomorrow? And uh, we imagine, you know, that in a monastery you get up at a certain time and you 
you go to the sala, you do the chanting, you you think that that's that's what we're expecting tomorrow. But expectation, hope, and dread, and all these conditions arise always in the present. So the ultimate reality is the present moment. Nothing, you know, high up or away, but always here, always now, and and always aware. So when I, years ago in, in uh, reading the scriptures, in the Buddhist scripture, the suttas, you know, I became aware when the Lord Buddha was enlightened, uh, he made this pronouncement which translates into English as the gate to the deathless is open. And this is like a pronouncement, it's not like imagined. He wasn't theorizing or or imagining the gate to the to you know to the deathless. And what is the deathless? You know, everything, all the, you know, the conditions that we identify with are all about change and old age and death. You know, they can't sustain a peak moment in, in your lifetime. You have peak moments where everything is perfect or seems perfect. And, and I call that a peak moment of experience, but it's always here and now. And it can't be sustained because it's very nature dependent on so many other conditions like old age, sickness, death, loss, and fear, and, and uh, you know, who knows what you can imagine for the future, which, which even at the peak moment can bring about worry and fear about what will happen to me when, when all this isn't present anymore. You know, so we can spend our lives worrying about the future. Anxiety is a good translation of dukkha or suffering. Because in the terms of the future, what you can imagine, at this time in the history of the planet, the future doesn't look that promising, like living happily ever after in a peaceful world of democratic systems that are completely honest and not corrupt. That's an ideal, you know, that's not going to happen because the present conditions that we're experiencing with the climate change, with the COVID-19 virus pandemic, uh, with with so many unknown factors or factors that we become aware of that are changing in a way we don't want them to. You know, so the future is at this moment in time for every single one of us, every human being living on this planet is what we don't know. It's possibility, it could be everything, climate change changes for the better, Uh, the COVID virus disappears from the planet. You know, this is wishful thinking about the future. And we're aware wishful thinking is impermanent. You know, it might help us feel better if we hear, you know, how many people want to hear 
the depressing news of the state of the universe at this time. You know, tell me everything is okay, even if it's not. <laughs> I just want to believe everything is okay. And this is the delusions we create in the present because we're not aware uh, of, you, you know, we're not interpreting our experience, the experience that we're having in the present moment. We're not interpreting it with wisdom, but with the ego, the self-view, the delusions that we've been conditioned by through culture, through religion, through, uh, you know, education. We all have formed definite views, opinions of what's right and wrong, good and bad. And, and this, and so you recognize you're not born with these ideals of right and wrong. You know, you acquire that through social conditioning, cultural conditioning, through religious conditioning, through your parents. And that's why there are so many conflicts because we don't recognize the unity that underlies all the differences, which is awareness itself, is unifying the conditions. You can't unify the conditions because their nature is to be different. Some are good, some are bad, some are high, low, right and wrong. You can't unify all these different complicated conditions that are changing, you know, any kind of hope for unity and permanent peace in the world through through conferences, through, through meetings and agreements. Like United Nations, I remember uh, when it was formed after World War II, you know, I was like 12 years old then, and, and it was kind of the hope of the world, there would never be another world war after World War One, World War Two, the United Nations, we'd all get together and agree on proper behavior. And to this day, you know, there's endless criticisms and disappointments about the United Nations because they haven't been able to achieve what they've set out to achieve, which was good. You know, United Nations, nations united in wisdom. Can you get any better than that? <laughs> But it's not the way things are. And the Buddha was pointing to the way things are. All conditions are impermanent. And they, and that, that reflection on impermanence is important, to, you know, to, to prove to yourself, not to just believe what the Buddha said or what I'm saying, or to question it, but to investigate. Can you, what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, emotions, uh, can it, do you have any permanent emotions or permanent memories? You know, they come and go according to other conditions. So just by investigating in this simple way, you begin to have the insight, you know, for yourself that all conditions are impermanent. And we wonder, what, what is a condition? You know, when we, 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 because that's our identity out of ignorance, we identify with conditions. So we're identifying with the restless changingness that we experience through the sentient qualities of our, of this human body. You know, it's a restless, 
form that's gets too hot or too cold, gets tired, gets hungry, uh, gets old, gets sick, will die. You know, so you, when you're trying to find permanent peace through through clinging to ideals of peace, you you end up being a cynic. You you become cynical about life, about politics, about the world, because you know all poli- you can think all politicians are corrupt and dishonest, and that's depressing because you want politicians to be honest and trustworthy. But politicians are in permanent conditions in nature, so they can't really help the way they are, but because they're conditioned to be that way. But what we as human beings can do is reflect on the way things are as we experience them in our lives and begin to realize that the the permanent peace, universal love and happiness uh, is the natural state. We don't create permanent peace through desire or permanent or love through desire or happiness through desire for it. When we recognize that our natural state, consciousness itself, is 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 that is perfect already. It's not we don't need to find it, you don't need to look for it by you know searching the world for enlightenment, but by understanding just the simple realities of your own experience here and now. So the question about watching the mind, you know, this is this is a very good question, by the way. And, and uh, I appreciate the person's asking it because uh, it's important to because some ideas, you know, you get a lot of information uh, in the Buddhist world that you need to develop samadhi first before you can uh, do vipassana, which is not wrong. You know, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it gives the impression that you as a separate conditioned personality and ego need to get something you don't have, like concentration, like samadhi. And we start from basically with this delusion uh, that, you know, we're going to be disappointed because even if we get what we want, you know, it doesn't last. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't enlightenment. It's just, you, you know how to pacify the thinking mind and, and concentrate on one object, sending your consciousness out towards an object that uh, by shutting the world out, by rejecting everything except this one object of concentration. And that can lead to watching the mind. You know, so I, that's a fair enough way to practice. But for those of us who found, you know, that the, the ego was the real problem, the, the ego that I'm an obsessed thinker, that just the words, I am an obsessed thinker. I create those words. Nobody's told me I'm an obsessed thinker. Even my mother 
never said that to me. I created that criticism. And just by, and even people who don't like me at all never accuse me of obsessed thinking. It's just, it's just the perception I've created about myself from the ego level, not from the wisdom level. And when I take that apart, when I observe, when I put myself in the puto position, the knowing, I is a personal pronoun, only one letter. And when you deliberately think I, and stop there, the I disappears. And what's left is awareness. You don't drop dead or lose consciousness when you stop thinking. So you begin to notice the spaces between thoughts. I am an obsessed thinker. And when I deliberately, intentionally think that, I see that that's just a perception I've created a kind of self-criticism, because it sounds to me like I'm criticizing myself. But behind all those words, like I am an obsessed thinker, is the silence, the eternal silence of awareness. So this is, it is beginning to recognize, realize, the silence behind the thoughts, behind the emotions, behind the feelings, behind everything that you're thinking, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, is silence, peacefulness. It's pe silence is peaceful. It's eternal. It doesn't as something that arises and ceases or is destroyed. It's just how we, when we start thinking, then we concentrate on the meanings of the words that we're thinking. And, and they lead us all over the place, you know, to being self-critical, to being hopeful for the future, to being depressed or anxious about the future, or remembering past experiences. When we were treated unfairly, we can get depressed and angry over, you know, nothing that's happening right now, but just being attached to conditions that, that we remember or that we imagine. But when we stop clinging to memory, to imagination, what's left is pure conscious awareness. And that's the liberation from suffering that the Buddha pointed at. So the Buddhist teachings, the Four Noble Truths, you know, when you, you know, I always loved this teaching from even before I met Lumpur Cha because it addressed uh, uh, something very real to me when I was young, that, that life isn't a happy experience. That, you know, even though the American ideal is that live, love, laugh, laugh and be happy, and there's a silver lining to every cloud and all the happy, happy uh, American songs that, that I was 
when I was young, I, I heard on the radio that you should be happy is, uh, you know, and you want, I wasn't happy because I, my critical mind never allowed me to really be happy for very long. And, and then the, when the Buddha emphasized in his first sermon after enlightenment suffering, I thought, this makes sense. There is suffering. It's not like something that only I experience, that I'm somehow kind of alone in this world, suffering all by myself, everyone else is happy, like it seems. Because my generation, you know, I mean, in the 80s now, my generation, when we were young, we weren't di discussing our feelings. You say, how are you today? I'm fine. <laughs> Everything's okay. You know, now the younger generations are quite willing to discuss what they're feeling. But it still remains clinging to personal identity, to possessiveness with, with conditions that are, that are basically impersonal. Even though they, they give the impression of being personal, they are empty phenomena, just an empty phenomenon that comes and goes, arises and ceases. And so one of my favorite teachings is from a Greek philosopher that I came across years ago called Pyro of Ellis about 250 BC, and generally it's called the Greek Buddha, but it's very succinct, very direct in the fact that it says, by refraining, what is it? By suspending, by suspending judgment, by confining oneself to phenomena or objects as they appear, and by asserting nothing definite as to how they really are, one can escape the perplexities of life and attain an imperturbable peace of mind. So, you know, this is, this is a universal teaching, not just Buddha's teaching, because it is a, the reality of our human existence. It's not a, a, just a metaphysical idea or a, or a recent technique, psychotherapy psychotherapeutic technique. This was discovered by Buddha 2,564 years ago. And then um, Pero Vallis and probably many others uh, in the, especially in the Eastern world, in India and China, you know, there's, their basic religions are about awareness. Another important thing to question is, you know, like how to interpret words like faith and belief. Because the second part of uh, the gates to the deathless are open. What are the gates to the deathless? You know, where are they? The gates to the deathless are open. It's a pronouncement, you know, in the, in the scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures, suttas. No, I think Buddha wouldn't lie to us. He's, he's, he's saying something very wonderful, really. The deathless, 
where you know all we think of is is that we're going to die because the body you know is going to die we all are aware that we're going to die and um, there's a joke about the permanent illness of birth terminal illness because it's going to end in death you can make a joke about it but we want to hear that everything is okay and that that they'll find a, some kind of medicine that modern science will find some life reviving medicine we can live 200 or 500 years where some people have their bodies frozen when they're dead so that when modern science comes up with a new drug to inject into the frozen corpse it will come alive is rather eerie when you think of it like a Frankenstein horror show <clears throat> but I mean, people have this idea that experience is, is, is the body alone, the sense world that we create in our minds is our reality. But ultimate reality, the deathless, Amata Dhamma, or the deathless reality, the gate to the deathless is awareness, conscious awareness. And that's here and now. So when the Buddha said the gate to the death is open, we don't have to look for a gate really. It's just a, a figure of speech. But the gate is here and now. It's awareness, conscious awareness. So it's not something that far away or difficult to find. It's what you really are. And you begin to, to you know, just by considering that. Like, what, what is it? Where is the gate to the deathless? It's a metaphor, but it has to apply to something, you know, not like a gate out that I see with my eyes, but a gate is an entrance, isn't it? Entrance to the deathless here and now. A matadama, deathless reality. And then the second line of that, ye soda vantaba munchantu satan, trust this, those who hear me, those who hear this teaching about the gates to the death is open, trust, this is faith. But it's not about belief, it's not believing that the Buddha opened the gate to the deathless. And that's still believing, you know, in words. But it, it's, a, you know, the Buddha saying the gate of this is open, not about, it's a belief that Buddhists must be attached to. But it takes a certain amount of faith and confidence, trust in awareness to break through the habits that we delude ourselves with, generally speaking. So, you know, one is trusting, you know, like for myself, my practice is, is really a non-practice. It's a continuous reference to here and now. Because when we chant about in the Pali language of Theravada Buddhism, we chant uh, uh, Santitiko Dhamma, Santitiko 
is a, is a description of Dhamma here and now, apparent here and now. So what is apparent here and now for each one of us is that we're conscious, you know, you're conscious. That's apparent, you don't have to ask somebody else. So that's Dhamma, apparent here and now. But then we start thinking, what is apparent here and now? And then we, some, most people don't even think of consciousness. They think of, uh, well, the scene as Buddha Rupa. I <laughs> see monks in this room and it's apparent here and now. But the, those change, don't they? You know, they, they're not here permanently. <laughs> and I'm not sitting here permanently, but wherever I am, apparent here and now, Dhamma, ultimate reality, or just plain reality itself. So the word Dhamma in, in uh, Theravada Buddhism, the Pali form that we use, is, it's, it's, it's translated best with the English word reality. Even ultimate makes it sound special. When you say ultimate reality, that seems very high, you know, reality that's way up there. But when we just say reality, awakenness here and now, apparent here and now, timeless, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma, timelessness, try to imagine timelessness. You know, test, experiment with your thinking mind. Can you imagine timelessness? You know, it makes your brain stop thinking or gets it into a real confused state because thinking is all about time. Thinking is words that are sankaras, that are conditions, they rise and cease. So you can't think yourself to enlightenment. It's impossible. So, Akalika Dhamma, timeless reality, here and now. That's conscious awareness. And that's not personal. It's not like I claim it is mine, because as soon as I claim it, I'm back in the Sansara, the world of birth and death. As soon as I claim ultimate reality on a personal level, I find myself back in the world of Ajahn Sumato and his views and opinions. <laughs> and how I've been conditioned to think and feel as a Buddhist monk. But apparent here and now, <clears throat> Timeless, I found these, these reflections because they, in Buddhist monasteries in Thailand and in England, they, they chant this every morning, every evening, part of the traditional Pali chanting translated into English in, in England or America. You know, it translates Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehi Pasiko, Opanaiko, Bajitam, Waiti Dapo, and you chant that. I learned to chant that before I understood what it meant. I could chant it 
and even I learned the Thai translations first. Then when I went to live in England, 1977, I, I translated it all into English. And then I really contemplated refuge in Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless. Ehipasiko means encouraging investigation. It's like an invitation to investigate here and now. Not just believe in Buddhism, but it's, it's a, you know, very beautiful invitation, encouragement, you know, to wake up and observe and investigate, not just believe what you're told and through scriptures or what other teachers tell you. Santitiko, Akariko, Epasko, Obanayko is like going inward. So it's like watching from the, by suspending judgment, by being the witness, the puto, observing the, the thoughts, the emotions, the, the habits that you have, the restlessness, the, the fears, the anxiety, the guilt, remorse that arise always in the present. So you're not trying to get rid of, of uh, fear. You're not trying to conquer anger or, you know, you're, you're taking a position of puto knowing anger is impermanent, not self. Fear is impermanent, not self. And you're not just repeating these words because you give up thinking by noticing the space between the words there's a silence that you begin to recognize that the unawakened person never recognizes. You know, they, they aren't aware of silence. They're, they're noisy minds. And since in moments, you know, where we have what can be called mystical experiences, where we feel suddenly really at peace and silent. But then we try to figure it out then we're back into the world of noise and confusion. But when we investigate here and now, it doesn't mean there's anything to investigate, so pay attention and recognize the silence when the puto disappears. And between Pu and to, there's a silence. And even the, and the puto is, is Buddha or awakened consciousness. So it all comes together in the sense of the perfection of reality here and now that is available to every one of us, every human being. You know, so it's, it's not about you know, saying that that it's uh, very special, it's very ordinary, and that's one thing that Lumpur uh, Charge and Char used to emphasize endlessly is how ordinary it is, because we think of enlightenment as something special and uh, high up. You know, when you think of somebody as enlightened, they're way up there and not down here. Or 
but he's always emphasizing the ordinariness of awareness. Here and now, encouraging investigation. So it's not about just blindly believing words that the Buddha said, looking inward rather than seeking the gates to the deathless, uh, some, some gates that live that abide in India or someplace like that. You'll be disappointed if you're looking to the gates of the deathless in India. You don't need to, to go to India, but to be aware here and now. And <clears throat> silence <clears throat> is something that we're not used to. So we, we tend to emotionally react to it, thinking it's boring. Or it couldn't be this simple. You know, the thinking mind is a questioning mind. It's, it's a doubting mind. It'll, the more you think, the more you doubt. So when you think about si this silence, this stillness that, that is a substratum, the basis of, of experience here and now is not something far away or difficult to recognize or realize, but it's ignored. For the habit patterns of our restless thoughts, desultory thoughts, our conditioned habits, our cultural conditioning, our religious conditioning, everything that we've been told that we operate from the conditioned realm as a person, as an ego, which is based on belief that sankaras are our reality. So, you know, now considering returning to live in the UK and I'm thinking about my passport, which is European Union, not the future. Whether they'll let me in or not, I'm a British citizen. <laughs> and, but I know what's happening. And then you realize the future takes care of itself. You know, you know, if you, if you trust in awareness in the present, you, you, you can adapt and uh, adapt yourself to what happens in the future. Because at this moment in time, the future is unknown. It's not, you know, this is what you know right now. Tomorrow is possibility. Tomorrow is Tuesday. <laughs> Tomorrow is, you know, we have to recite the 227 rules of monastic discipline. And that right now, these, these are thoughts, memories that we assume is the future, but the reality of the future is not here, it's not real, is it? It's imagination. Tuesday is imagined right now. So that's not tomorrow. But there's always now, here and now, Pachubana Dhamma that we effortlessly, you know, we always talk about effort 
and uh, putting a lot of effort into meditation because you know the thinking mind thinks you have to you have to work hard to get enlightened and you've got to you know put forth a lot of effort and this this is the cultural very strong cultural conditioning of, especially in the western world you know that success lies uh, de- depends on hard work and uh, this is you know, this is a cultural conditioned attitude that that we acquired from. You know, we weren't born with that attitude; it, we acquired it according to our culture, our class identities, our race, our religion. You know, these are all acquired identities. But when we when we uh, try hard. You know, then we begin, and you're aware, you begin to see that right effort is really a kind of total trust in awareness, which is a relaxed state. You don't put forth effort to be aware of the here and now because it's, it's always here and now. It's just relaxing into it, observing, being the puto, the knowing of reality here now. Do you have any further questions? I think it's enough for today. Thank you very much for